Good morning. My name is uh, Mark Stalter, and uh, I, along with my wife Ashley and my three kids, Gavin, Ella, and Easton, have been coming here for, uh, well, I, to keep track of it, i got to think how old Ella is, because we started when she was uh, a baby, so almost 13 years. So she'll be a teenager in February, so watch out. Um, I also have uh, the scripture reading for this morning, so let me dive into that here. Um, it's 1 Corinthians um, 6, 1 through 11. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge you, judge the world? And if the world, and, and if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this, is, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brothers, instead brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards. Verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is, is Ryan, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's always good to, to worship with the Cross Point family, and so good to to hear all that God is doing in this church, God, all that God is doing through this church. Um, today we're going to be talking about the family way as it relates to conflict, but it's so sweet to hear how Crosspoint is living out uh, and being generous with your time and money of sending shoeboxes to, to the nations and to open up your home with adoption and foster care and seriously considering if that is what the Lord is calling you to. And, and that too is is the family way. That's the family way of what God has called us to. So those are sermons for, for another day. Um, today, um, when Pastor Dave asked if, if I would be willing to, to come and, and share, our church is actually also going through 1 Corinthians. And so it, it worked out fairly well to be able to, to come. And I know last week in chapter 5, it was about uh, church discipline. And the man was with his father's wife. And then next week, the end of chapter 6 is about sexual immorality. And so as a guest, I said, I'll take the one in between, <laughs> and we'll, we'll go with that. And so before we, we jump into the, the scripture and walk our way through it, I want to ask those of you who have children, do your uh, kids ever fight? Yeah, you, you chuckle. Yes, they, they do. For those who don't, what about you? When you were a kid, did, did you ever fight or be in conflict with a brother or sister? Of course. Whenever I was a kid, I was a little bit ornery at times, depending on who you ask. 
but I would often pick on my younger brother, and one time my older brother had had enough, and so he was coming after me. And so I could take my younger brother, but my older brother, I was, my best chance was just to run. And so I was running around the house. Eventually I got away, and I locked myself in a room so he, he couldn't get in. And he was so mad at me that he wanted me to open the door, and I refused. And so he punched the door and left a lasting mark <laughs> on our conflict in that moment. I think there's still today a, a marching band poster that is over... <laughs> That, that part of the door. <laughs> but but what, did, what did my brother do next? We obviously couldn't solve the conflict between us. And so the next step is then to go to the authorities. Mom. And now imagine if, if my mom in that moment would say, ah, you know, I'm really not sure what to do in this situation. Let's go across the street and ask Mrs. Johnson to help solve this problem. It's a ridiculous idea. You, you, would, you would never do that. Why? Because when there's family conflicts, you keep it in the family. That's the family way. And so that is essentially the argument that Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's not what the Corinthian church was doing. They had conflict within one another, and the way of the Greek society was to have these grand courts to bring judges in and that's what the church was doing instead of solving it within themselves they were going outside the church and that's not the family way so to to bring us up to speed essentially what's happening in first corinthians there's disunity in the church and paul is claiming like get it together come together as one Christ should unite us. And at the same time, while they are disunified in the church, they were becoming like the outside outside culture. And so this was also taking place in how they handled conflict. And so in verse 1 here, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is a rhetorical question, as if to say, how dare you, how dare you take these issues and go outside to seek help? The the Greeks like to take their lawsuits with one another before the courts, and and it was kind of like in our day, except instead of 12 people on a jury, they would have hundreds of people on a jury to decide who's right and who's wrong. How, how, and how would you ever, how, ever come to a consensus on, on who's right? You wouldn't. And yet this custom had, had not properly been abandoned by the church of Corinth. Yet again, the culture was casting its sway within the body of Christ. And, and this was not a new idea for the people of God. I mean, you look in the Old Testament and, and the Jews were commanded by God to not bring judgments of Israel before the Gentiles. And, and, and to me, that just kind of makes sense, right? Like we have family values. We have certain things that we say are right and wrong. And, and the culture has certain things that they say are right and wrong. So why would we take our issues here and, and go outside for, for help and assistance? And yet that's, that's exactly 
what they were doing. And, and Paul makes a case of, of why this, this makes no sense. Why this makes no sense. He, he takes a step back to show them you know, where the history of the world is going. Where the history of, of God's people is, is going and why this is such a shocking idea to do this. So in verse 2, do you not know? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, this is interesting because at the end of chapter 5, if you were here, you remember that Paul said, look, don't worry about the outside world. Like, there's people within the church that are doing these sinful things that need to be kicked out for their own, the sake of their own soul and for the purity of the church, they need to be kicked out. So don't worry about the world, worry about the church. And now here he says, don't you know that you will judge the world? And so, what is, so what is this? And verse 2 is, is, a, is a parallel, almost a step further. It says, do you not know that you, we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? We're going to judge angels? If, if I was an angel re- reading this passage, I, I, would, I would say, really? Like, the humans? <laughs> These guys are unfaithful. They're sinful. They're rebellious. They're going to judge us? So what's, what, is, what is Paul getting at here? And, and honestly, the, the, the idea of judging the world and judging angels isn't really talked about that much in the rest of Scripture. So how should we, how should we think about this? have a couple of verses that I think can help. So look in the Old Testament, pointing forward to when Jesus would come, Daniel 7, 22, until the Ancient of Days would come, judgment would be given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. It's pointing to a future day. Revelation 2, 26 says, The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And so there's almost this going back to the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to rule and to reign over the rest of creation. And this word to judge, it it also has a connotation of of ruling and and reigning and, and power and authority. As if to say, look, one day Christ will come and he will judge the world. He will rule and he will reign. And if we are with Christ, if we are with him, there's a sense where we get to do that with him. And for the, the, and for the angels, I don't think this is talking about the good angels. Because the good angels one day will come in glory with the Son of Man. Jude, verse 6, talks about the rebellious angels. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. As if to say, when Satan and his friends rebelled against God, there was judgment that happened. They were kicked out of heaven. But there's another judgment that's coming. And we as the people of God, one day will be part of that with Christ. So he's like, look, look at the great responsibility of what you will one day do. Now, live like that now. These 
tiny, minuscule, trivial situations. Can you not figure it out? To, to give an illustration, think about Thanksgiving Day. It's, it's, it's coming up. You've got turkey, sweet potatoes, green bean casserole, all the good, all the good things. And now, who, who's in charge of making the Thanksgiving meal in your family? Maybe you kind of split it up. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the wife. Maybe it's grandma. And when I was growing up, oftentimes grandma was kind of the, the master chef. It was known, okay, grandma is going to be the one who's going to make the meal, and it's going to be fantastic. And, and so uh, imagine with me, Thanksgiving Day is coming. Grandma's going to make the great feast. And you get a call, and grandma asks you, hey, how do you make a PB&J sandwich? I'd be like, what? <laughs> Whose grandma am I talking to? Who is this? You're going to make a feast, and yet you can't make this PB&J sandwich. You see, one day we, with all the saints, will do something of such great significance. Can we not now do something of much lesser significance? God has given us wisdom and discernment, and we should be able to handle these things within the body of Christ. And so that's one reason of like, look, you should be able to handle it, but the, the, the problem of taking these conflicts outside of the church has a bigger impact. It's not, it's not just about us. It has an impact on those who are watching. Because those who are within the world see how we engage with one another in our conflict. And so the reason that we should not bring our disputes between non-Christians is that it's not the family way. Now, I want to give an application here because the obvious application is the same application as it was for the Corinthians. Hey, don't go to court with Christians. Like, if you've got a problem, figure it out. And some of you are thinking, got it. <laughs> I wasn't planning to, but now I for sure won't. I want to take a step forward, a step further, and I think we can ask this question. Who or what do you allow to influence your life? Who or what do you allow to influence your life? Because that was part of the problem. The outside world was influencing the Christian church. Uh, I remember um, Anna telling me about when she was in college, oftentimes she would have questions about certain things, and, and she would call up Pastor Dave or Eric Johnson and be like, hey, I need a meeting. I need to figure this out. I got some questions about how should I think about this? How should I handle that? I see this in the scriptures. What does that mean? I need to, I, I need to meet. Essentially what she was saying is I care about what you believe. I, I want you and your thoughts and your wisdom to have influence on my life. And so we can, we can watch the news. We can have social media. We can seek advice from non-Christian friends and family. But honestly, ask the question, who or what has the most influence in your life? And is it those who also have the Spirit of God and who are part of the family of God 
and therefore have the wisdom of God and share the same family values. And so think about this week, knowing that it's election season and tensions are high, who or what has the most influence in your life? And I think that is the question that Paul is asking to them in that day. And he's, he, he does it more aggressively. <laughs> in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. To your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. He's like, come on, what are you doing? He's hoping that some of these Christian, Corinthian leaders would turn red in embarrassment. And he, And earlier, he says in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. But here, here he's calling them out. I mean, imagine if if one of you came to our house and found out that Mrs. Johnson helped us solve the family conflict. You would look at my mom and be like, really? What? What what are you doing? That's, That's not the family way. He intends to, in a sense, to to shame them, to expose the ridiculousness of of what they're doing in hopes that their embarrassment would lead to actionable change. Because such lawsuits certainly did not glorify God. And the impact was compounding. It was compounding. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all, with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, when two Christians go head-to-head in public, it's a lose-lose situation. The, the way that we are perceived by the outside world matters. We are Christ's ambassadors, after all. For, for many people, they will never step into a church. They will never read a Bible. Their understanding of God, their understanding of the gospel is predicated on us. Their understanding of the church and is influenced by what Christians are doing. Now, yes, uh, undoubtedly, if, if we are to be faithful to God and his word, the, the church will be criticized by the world for certain beliefs. But may it not be criticized for our lack of love towards one another. Why? Because the the church, God created the church to be a unique, distinct place of gathering, of belonging, a a supernatural community of people, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, people from all walks of life, where everyone has a name. Everyone is valued. And so disputes mischaracterize what the church is intended to be. It it misrepresents who God is and his nature and his character about bringing us together under the head of Christ. And did, did you catch what he said? Would you not rather suffer wrong? Would you rather not be defrauded? 
be cheated. This is a high calling and an honest question that is hard. Like, are you willing to be cheated or to be misunderstood for the sake of the unity of the church? This is the heart of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's, that's hard for us to hear in a nation where justice is prioritized and where justice is enforced and where justice matters, and it does. But there's this sense where there's, a, there's something that is more important than justice, and it's the unity within the church? And are we willing to be misunderstood, misrepresented? Paul is saying that th- there's th- the physical loss was preferable to the spiritual loss produced by the lawsuits. And, and for sure, there's someone who's right, there's someone who's wrong, someone who can say, hey, you owe me money. You've messed up, and you owe me And so I'm going to get everything I can out of you because I have the right to do that. And yet Paul is saying, no. No, don't go there. Be willing to be wronged and cheated. A personal loss for the sake of upholding the image of the church to a watching world. And yet that's not what they were doing. Like that's the family way. But he says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It's not the way we act within the family of God. And and now he, he expands upon that as if to say, look, you're acting like the people outside the church. Like don't you realize, don't you realize what the kingdom of God is. Don't you know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And he gives us this list of sins. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now I just want to take a moment to, to address and just make sure it's clear what each of these sins are. He says, do not be deceived, as if to say, look, there are some within you who are deceived. Some of you who think that these aren't that big of a deal. And there's some today who would say the same thing. That, ah, like these, you know, not that big of a deal. But this is a similar list that Paul gave in chapter 5, a list where he said, hey, if anyone is living in these ways who are unrepentant, who thinks that living like this is fine, you are to kick them out of the church. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, those who living in sexual lifestyles outside the the confines of marriage, nor idolaters, having something else placed as king. Now, we live in a neighborhood called Little India. There's a a Hindu temple across the street from our church. 
And so we, we think about, we, like, we typically think about idols like, um, you know, sports or money or, you know, things like that that we prioritize above God. And, you know, walking along Devon Avenue, we can look at a store and say, oh, that is an idol. That, that, that right there is an idol. We can't have idols and Jesus on the same shelf. And so whether it's a physical thing or it's a, an idea or way of life, the idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. And, and adulterers, so being um, you know, not holding to the marriage covenant, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, there, there could be a lot to be said about, about this term, this phrase. Um, it, if you look at some other translations or if you look in the original language, this is actually two different uh, terms, essentially talking about both individuals who are in a homosexual relationship. And so I think that the translation is fine because it's saying men, all people who practice homosexuality. It's not just those who are in prostitution or illegal behavior, but it's all who practice homosexuality. And this is not just in this verse. It's, it's expounded upon in, in Romans chapter 1 about unnatural relations. You take a step back and you look at the, the grand view of Scripture about how the Bible begins with a marriage, how the Bible ends with a marriage, with Christ and his bride. This is a theme that is, is present within the scriptures. And, and so I won't go into any greater detail here, but I do just want to say if, if this is something that, that you're wrestling with or something you have, you have questions with or you're like, I, I don't know how I feel about this, I want to invite you just to, to do what Anna did. Go talk to Pastor Dave or go talk to one of the other elders. You, the, you won't be shamed. You won't be looked down upon. We need to engage in these ideas that, that we wrestle with. Some of you are okay with this. You're like, yeah, I get it. But, but some are, are like, I, I don't know how I feel about this. So whether it's this specific issue or one of the other ones, I encourage you to, to, to be okay to talk about these things. Let's think about this together. Because it's, it's that, but then it's also these other things. Thieves, greedy. So greedy is like, okay, materialism. Or coveting that which isn't yours. And there's also drunkards, revilers, you know, those who are being verbally abusive or gossiping, swindlers, those who are business leaders who have ruthless business practices, those who identify with any of these things, any of these things who mark your life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now there's a sense where you, you might think, well, these list of sins are like an entrance exam. You know, if you don't pass, if you, if you miss one of the check marks, then you're out of heaven, and that's that. And I don't think that's actually the main thing that's happening here, because he's talking about inherit the kingdom of God. How do you inherit something? You work hard, you show that you're deserving. No. Th- think about the... the Think about the man who took his inheritance from his father, who demanded him to have it before he even died, and he ran off and abused the entire inheritance. 
Inheritance is not about what you do, but it's about whose you are. It's about the relationship. It's not received by what you do, but by whose you are, a son or daughter of God. And so what Paul is trying to raise the question is like, are you part of the family? Because these are not the family ways. The family takes money, sex, and power and uses them for the good of all, not just for the good of the individual. It looks differently than how the outside world handles money, sex, and power. And so if you are, if you have been adopted into the family of God, then that should influence the way that we do these things. So live it out. Live it out. And as I was reading this list, it, it, are there any sins that stick out to you? That, that really catch your eye? I found it's often the sins that others struggle with that we notice the most. That we have this sense of ranking these list of sins from most serious to least serious. But Paul puts greedy and revilers, materialists, gossips, he put those in the same sentence as the sexual immorality. And as I've recognized this list, I, I once took a, 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 cult a culture class in seminary about you know, how Christians in other parts of the world think about sin and how here in America we might have a certain ranking of sins and Christians in other parts of the world and other cultures would flip that list. They would think to be, to be thieves, to be greedy, to be revilers is, is the worst of sins. And so I think it's, we can pause for a moment and, and realize that before God Almighty, all of these sins are viewed similarly. And so where do we go from here? If, if, you're, if you're in the Corinthian church and you're reading this and you're saying, man, I've, I've missed it. I have done some, some of these things. So I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God. What, what a beautiful verse. Think of the imagery. Washed, sanctified, justified. You were washed. The dirtiness of our sin. But by the blood of Jesus on the cross, we were washed. Sanctified. You were set apart. You were set aside. So you were washed and then set aside for another purpose and then justified. You were looked at and declared righteous before God. Despite the dirtiness of our sin, we were washed, sanctified, and justified by Christ. And as I was thinking about this, I, I, I realized that our amazement of, of this verse is contingent 
upon how we view that previous verse. And our, and potentially our superficial ranking of sins is why we find ourselves ranking our testimonies. Right? You've been there. You've heard that person wrecked by drugs, wrecked by alcohol. Maybe that's some of your story. But we can easily place those stories, those people on a pedestal. And look, when the Lord Jesus transforms the heart of a drunkard, raises his soul from the dead, brings him out of darkness and into light, hallelujah, praise God. And, and when the Lord Jesus transformed the heart of a materialist, of a gossip, when he brings them out of darkness and into light, hallelujah, praise God. I used to think that I had a, a boring testimony because my past didn't include some of these high-ranking sins in my own superficial ranking. And I later realized I didn't have a boring testimony. I just didn't fully realize what happened. I was bad at telling the story. See, when a mechanic takes a totaled car and transforms it into something new, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And when a mechanic takes a fender bender and makes it new, how do I respond? I'm thankful, I'm appreciative, but I'm not amazed. And the truth is, for all who have placed their trust in Jesus, who have been adopted into the family of God, our soul was like a totaled car in need of a resurrection miracle to be saved. And God has done it. He's done it. And so our past does not define us. No matter how good or bad our past is, from our perspective, we all desperately need the washing of Christ, the washing, the sanctifying, the justifying. The family way is to turn from these sins because of what Christ has done for us. And if you take a step back and look at the, the first, Corinthians, first Corinthians as a whole, it's a bit shocking that Paul would say this, right? He, he's telling these people that they are boastful, that they are shameful, that they are wrongful, that they are defrauding. And yet, those who put their trust in Christ, who repent of their sins, they have been washed clean by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news for us. So if you're struggling with any of those sins, if you're wrestling with any of those things, realize that if you are part of the family of God, can be washed clean. He's calling us to that today. To live in accordance with the family way. So I'll close with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Slavery. So living a, a lifestyle marked by these sins. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery. No. You received the spirit of what? of adoption, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One day we will reign with Christ, not because of how great we are, but how great Christ is. And so may family matters be resolved within the family of God because the world is watching. That's the family way. And church, let us proclaim to others and to the world how we have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the family way. Would you pray with me? Father, how how amazing is it that we can call you Father? Despite all of the muck that's in our past, or even some of the muck that we did this week, God, we praise you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God that there's an inheritance that awaits us. That we can come before you and you hear us, you love us, you care for us, and you set us apart for a purpose, to declare your glory to this world. And so, God, we are a weak people. Help us. Help us to live humbly, to resolve conflicts with one another well in a way that honors you and honors your bride, the church. And God, help us to realize what you've done in our hearts. To not live in pride, thinking that we are deserving of your love in any way. But God, may we honor you, worship you, may we glorify you in the way that we live our lives, the way that we tell our story about what you've done in us and through us. God, to you belong all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes this in uh, Colossians 3, describing the family way. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.